All right, let's turn in the Bible to probably the most familiar passage of Scripture uh, in all of the Bible, which is the book of John, the third chapter. John chapter number three. We're going to read from verse 1 of John chapter 3 down to verse number 13. Verse verse number 1 down to verse number 13. The Bible says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth, where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, And testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. When I think of the, the number of people, the 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 quality of people that have taken this passage of Scripture and have preached from it, I have no doubt but that I will not do it justice this morning. But the truth in in this passage of Scripture is so, so very important. It is so very important. So let's pray together and then we'll get into the message. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what you uh, have put in your word here. Let us not... Uh, blithely and carelessly read over a familiar passage of Scripture like this. Lord, I ask specifically for your help and grace as we study this passage of Scripture, especially upon uh, the hearers as they hear it. Lord, guide me to know exactly, just exactly what uh, needs to be said according to your will. Lord, help me to make these things clear. Help us to, each one of us to see uh, your word and the truths that are that you spoke so long ago, that they would be clear to us and to our understanding. Lord, if there be one among us that has not yet been born again, 
would you please open the eyes of that person that they might see. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, verse 1 talks about a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You think of the, the, uh, the ruler of the Jews. Uh, this is a man, they say, who is a, a member of this. The passage does not say this, but it is assumed that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling religious ruling council in Israel. This man is not ignorant. This man is not secular. In fact, a book I was reading, uh, I actually am still reading, it describes the society of Israel in the first century as supremely religious. In other words, the greatest knowledge, I mean, pretty much everyone is very much unlike our society, uh, which is, you know, religious knowledge is considered to be a, a lesser form of knowledge in our society. But in this day, religious knowledge, like, such like this man would, ha would have had, was considered to be the pinnacle of knowledge among the Jews. This man would, be, would have been highly revered. He was very intelligent, probably wealthy, probably uh, very, uh, very well respected in his society. He was a very religious man, okay? He was a, he was a man who, uh, who was no doubt had more rules and regulations that he lived by than you, you, you and I live by, at least as it appeared outwardly. And this man in verse 2, of course, we know that the rulers of the Jews were often the people that gave the Lord the most, the, the, the greatest number of problems, right? Because, because they, they, they saw Jesus Christ as a threat to their power. And the book of John says that very plainly toward the end of the book of John. So this man in verse 2 says that the Bible says the same came to Jesus by night. Now, the question naturally arises is, why did he come at night? I, I read several different commentaries, and nobody really knows. Uh, I have my suggestion, my uh, guess, just to kind of get an idea of what's happening here. Uh, some people think he came to Jesus by night. One commentary, I kind of chuckled when I read it. It said he, they, he came to Jesus by night because he wanted to make sure he had an uninterrupted meeting with Jesus. Yeah, that, why are you laughing? You're laughing because I the same reason I laugh, no doubt. <laughs> and uh, one commentator said that uh, we do not need to impugn the motives of this good man and that kind of thing. And, and uh, the reason I think he came to Jesus by night, I think is the most obvious reason. When common sense makes sense, there is no other need for no other sense, right? Which is he, he wanted to be secret, right? Because he was a ruler. And as we'll see in just a minute, the rulers of the Jews... And the Jews, uh, the Jews in this day in particular, their whole religion was, was oriented toward how things appeared, okay? And so I think he came, most likely came to Jesus at night. Notice what he said, but because he wanted to keep his meeting with the Lord secret. Because in this verse, he reveals something about the rulers of the Jews in the early part of the Lord's ministry. Because this is in the early part of his ministry that is not really revealed in many places in the Bible. But it says this, and this goes back to what Zach, uh, Zach he stepped out, uh, what Zach and I were talking about, the King James Bible. He says, Rabbi, we know. So he's not referring only to himself. He's referring also to those on that council, those in his 
religious clique in, in, among the Pharisees, among the rulers of the Jews. So I don't know if, if they commissioned him. Probably not. Uh, because if that got out, that would be very bad political news for them. But he probably maybe wasn't commissioned to go talk to Jesus personally and to go get the inside scoop of what the Lord is saying. But anyhow, he reveals by what he says what the closed-door conversations were happening. As a side note, uh, what you find in the book of John versus the other three Gospels uh, you got Matthew, who was a disciple. You have Mark, who was related to Peter. So a lot of people call that Peter's gospel. And then you have Luke, who was, they call it Paul's gospel. But, uh, but then you have the book of John, and John was, was related to some of these rulers, right? He was related, I think, to the high priest in some kind of distant way. But the book of John actually gives inside information of what's going on behind closed doors and what their discussions are, and the other Gospels don't. And uh, that's just an interesting side note. But Nicodemus tells Jesus what they've been talking about, and it's, it's startling because we know that the rulers were the ones who, from the human perspective, were the ones primarily responsible for the Lord's ultimate crucifixion, Right? And they, the rulers said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. So the purpose of the Lord's miracles were, was manifest, and, and it accomplished its goal, which, were, which was what? The miracles of Christ were designed to convince people of the truth of who he was. Amen. Right? That's the purpose. And it accomplished its goal even among the rulers of the Jews, and of course we know among also the common people as well. Now, they admit that they know his messages from God. Now, that might have changed later. They might have changed their mind once they realized how, uh, or I guess perceived anyway, what kind of threat the Lord was going to be to their, to their, uh, their rule over the Jews. But at this point, they know who he is. So, Given that as a fact, that means that whatever these rulers did against the Lord Jesus Christ, they did so with knowledge, not ignorantly. And this is just a fact of human nature that oftentimes people that, that we meet, perhaps even yesterday, people that might have been uh, hostile toward the gospel or people we meet who are hostile toward the gospel, just because they're hostile toward us and unfriendly toward us to our face does not mean that they have not acknowledged the truth that we are giving to them. Sometimes people acknowledge the truth and still fight against it. That is a thing. And in fact, I would submit that it's probably a lot more common than we're aware. So this is the context in which this man comes to Jesus. Notice the flattery, just maybe a little bit. Notice the, the title used. I read in a, 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 just reading, kind of reading along as I study, reading along what different people say about the passage. He uses the term rabbi, which one thing I read said that the term rabbi was, uh, first of all, the Lord forbid his disciples from being called that, number one. And number two, uh, the term rabbi was something equivalent 
close to like a doctor of divinity. It was a title bestowed upon a person. And so you have this kind of little bit of flattery with this religious man coming to Jesus. He, he makes sure that he uses the right terminology as he meets someone who teaches God's Word and who is a man of, of letters. And a man of, appear, appears to be, Jesus appeared to be a man of learning. We know that the Lord was not in, a, in formal learning. He was, he, was, he was God in the flesh. And, uh, and so he comes to Jesus with this kind of attitude as a religious man, as a representative of the, the leading religious sect, okay, in Israel. Now, Nicodemus doesn't ask Jesus any question. It makes you wonder, why was he even coming? What was his purpose? Because he doesn't ask a question. He just, he just acknowledges that they, they know Jesus came from God. And the Lord completely completely ignores the flattery, the title, and the Lord turns immediately to what he wants to talk about, to what is important. Because what we'll see in a minute is that what Nicodemus was thinking and his whole kind of worldview, his religious paradigm was wrong. And Jesus had some corrections to make. And so Jesus answered, verse 3, and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, speaking to Nicodemus as an individual, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we need to first of all understand what this kingdom of God is. We would be mistaken if we assume that the, the words kingdom of God refers to heaven. That is not what the kingdom of God is. A lot of people think that. When I die, I'm going to the kingdom of God. And oftentimes they think that because of the term kingdom of heaven. They think, well, that's a, a, obviously a reference to heaven. It has, after all, has the word heaven in it. But that's also not a reference to heaven. So what is the kingdom of God? Let's look at a couple of passages. Hold your hand here. We're going to kind of go through these quickly because I want to get to the, the meat of what the Lord said. Look at Luke chapter 17, if you would. Hold your place here in John because we will be back here. Luke 17, verse number 20. Luke 17, verse 20. If you would look at the text, it says this. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God, notice the term, should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. So that tells you alone that that's not referring to a heaven of the future. That is referring to a present thing, but it's also something that is invisible, right? It is spiritual in nature. We talked about that on Wednesday night, right? We talked about the things that we should be able to see are things that are there and are real, but are not visible to the fleshly eye, right? Well, the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It is invisible, but it is real. Okay? Jesus said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For, look at this, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That means it is internal. Right? 
Of course, that's not heaven. Okay, Jesus, listen now. This is an important point to make to understand John chapter 3 and the conversation there. Jesus is not saying you have to be born again to go to heaven. Though that is true, that's not what he's saying. Okay? Look at uh, Romans, if you would, chapter 14. Of course, please hold your place in John. But look real quickly at Romans chapter 14. Verse number 17. This is a little bit of a, of a kind of ambiguous verse. In other words, it, it, it doesn't give you a clear context of what it's referring to, but it does give a character of the kingdom of God that we can, get, we can learn from. Romans 14, verse 17. It says this, For the kingdom of God is not... Meat and drink. Okay, referring to food, carnal things, outward things, even ceremonies, rituals, rites of religion. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know what those are? Those are inward virtues. Inward virtues. Graces. So here's the thing. We'll look at, look at Jeremiah in just a minute. The kingdom of God, from these passages and others that I won't go into right now, but the kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God is the invisible and spiritual dominion of God over His people. A kingdom is a... What a kingdom, by definition, is a sphere of rule. All right? A kingdom has a king. A kingdom has a sphere, a boundary of rule. And a kingdom has subjects. That's the three ingredients you have to have to have a kingdom. And God is the king, obviously. We, God's people, are the subjects. And His sphere of rule are, it is rather, all of His people, right? That makes up the kingdom of God. But this kingdom has no temples. It has no ceremonies. It has no rituals. It has no outward things that you can use to identify it. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It's internal. It's spiritual. You say, well, I can't see it. Well, therein lies the rub. Therein lies the rub, which we'll see in just a minute. So the kingdom of God is individual. The kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is relational. What do I mean by that? The kingdom of God is individual means each person enters the kingdom of God personally and individually. There is no group admission. Listen, I'll say it plainly. You can join this church and by virtue of your membership, you do not have membership in the kingdom of God. There is no access in that way, period. No ritual, no rite, be it water baptism, be it communion, or any other religious rite or ritual that man might invent or has invented can provide access to the kingdom of God. That is not how it is. The kingdom of God is personal, individual, and it must be received as such. You can't be a part of one group to get and to kind of kind of slide in secretly into the kingdom of God by virtue of your of your uh, your membership in some group. 
The kingdom of God is, it involves a man's or a woman's personal disposition toward God. It's you and it's God. I say the kingdom of God is spiritual because it is invisible. It is spiritual in nature. It deals with spiritual things, not physical things, not like a kingdom with guns and swords and armies and holy days and, and all of those things like a, like, a, uh, like a kingdom here on earth would be. It's not like that. It has no outward ceremonies, rituals, or temples. You say, well, what about baptism? And what about the Lord's Supper that we perform? There's, there's a place for that, and I'll, maybe I'll address that in a second. But, but this kingdom has, has nothing like that. It is deeply intimate. It is essentially inward. It deals with what God sees on the inside of you and what God sees on the inside of me. Not what men see on the outside of us. You see? And then it's relational. The kingdom of God is the description of the relationship we have to God. One of the many but definitely of the relationship we have to God personally. He is our king, Amen. right? We gladly and joyfully submit to him as his subjects. You say, I don't like that word subjection and rule. And I don't mind. I really don't mind. And that in itself is a feature of being in the kingdom Amen. of God and of the new birth, all right? We are his joyful subjects. We submit to Him gladly, and His domain is our lives. Where He leads, I will follow, right? This is the kingdom of God, as described in the Scripture. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 really quick. In the Old Testament, this is the prophecy, one of the prophecies, in which the new birth that Jesus mentioned, that He expected Nicodemus to understand, but he didn't. This is one of the passages of scriptures that, although it doesn't describe it as a new birth, it describes the characteristics of the new birth in prophecy form. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says this, and we'll see these features in just a minute. But this, verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their... What's that next word? What's that next word? Inward parts. So this is no longer a law that's proclaimed to the outside. This is a law that God puts on the inside. Right? The kingdom of God is in, within you. Here's what he says. And write it in their hearts. Individual. See that? Personal. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. That sounds a lot like kingdom, kingdom talk, does it not? God is our king. We are his people. Right? Again, that personal, that individual aspect. But again, there, this is not, this is talking about the heart. This is talking about the inside. This is essentially invisible, spiritual in nature. Right? Next verse, verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. I told you it was relational, did I not? It's relational. It deals with our relationship to God. For they shall all know me. 
From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This deals with our relationship to God. We, because, by virtue of the fact that we are in God's kingdom, we, are, we know God, and He knows us. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking of. So go back to John chapter 3, if you would. Jesus said, Verily, verily, in verse 3, I say unto thee, now, I just want to stop here. In verse 3, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there are probably people in this crowd or listening online that the very reading of this verse bothers them. Why? Because they do not understand they do not understand what it means to be born again. They've heard it many, 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 many times. They've heard people use the terminology and they have equated perhaps born again to maybe having a, a kind of a change in life direction. Maybe they've equated born again to baptism. Maybe they, they tried to rationalize what it means to be born again by other religious rites or rituals that they perform. They say, well, I've done that, so I'm born again. Even yesterday... When we were out witnessing, and I talked to a young man who graduated from a Christian school that if I named, if I named the Christian school, you would know it. A very large Christian school in Greenville. He graduated last year from a Christian school. And I walked up to this young man and I said, are you born again? He said, well, I've been baptized. How can a kid who graduated from a Christian school, not know what it means to be born again. But I want to tell you something. I'm not saying that to criticize him. There are many, many people that sit in churches and the, 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 the mention of being born again makes them uncomfortable because they have tried to equate it with a bunch of different things to try to understand and they know they don't really get it. They don't really know what it's talking about. And they question. If, if I don't know what that's talking I mean, have I been that? Well... Well, I've been baptized. I mean, I mean, I'm a member of a church. That, I mean, it's got to be something like that. But they don't know, and it bothers them. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, the Lord is not saying, now, this is true. Hear me now. This is true. What I'm about to say is true, but this is not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying that a man must be born again to go to heaven, though that is true. He's saying, he's, he's making rather a statement concerning the kingdom of God and its nature. Why can't a person who has not experienced the new birth, why can't that person see the kingdom of God. We're not talking about seeing with the physical eyes. This is perception. This is like understanding it. Why is that impossible? And the reason I, I believe, the reason for that is that is because of the way people view religion. 
which is this is a religious subject. This is a religious conversation. We're in a religious building. I'm not afraid of the word religion. But religion deals with, deals with what is on the outside, essentially. Most people view religion as a way or a means to present themselves as respectable and upstanding people. For, for most people, for most people, their religion is essentially about appearances. They come to church because they want to make sure people know that they're at church. And if they do not get noticed, they, they're highly offended because that's the purpose. is to make an appearance. To be known as a religious person. To be known as someone who goes to church. Their acts of service in, in the church is, is the place from which they derive their sense of righteousness. So what's most important to them is the way things appear, the honor and the benefit that they receive from that religious, that outward religious service. That is how most people view faith in Christ. It is essentially about the way things appear. It is essentially about being seen, feeling good about yourself, doing your duty in society, what, what, is, what provides a benefit to me? Look at John chapter 4. We're in 3. Look at chapter 4 if you would. This verse that I want to read here is totally lost on these people. Verse, verse number, chapter 4, verse number 23. Or if you look at verse 21 and verse 20, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. They're having a discussion about where you should worship. Do you hear that outward language? They're arguing. Not, they're not arguing, but people argue. The Samaritans said you should worship uh, on the mountains of Samaria. And the Jews, they argue you have to worship in Jerusalem. But what's in view? The in view is the pl- what's in view is the place. So the Jews think themselves righteous because they worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans think themselves righteous because they worship in Samaria. And, of course, you could tell there's kind of a a debate that the Lord addresses. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, inwardly. In truth, sincerely, when no one is looking, and that is the domain of the kingdom of God. So it's not about the way things appear at all. The kingdom of God is about the way things appear to God. Our relationship privately, secretly to God. And to a person who has not been born again, they say, We'll see use of that. Because religion is essentially about the benefit derived, the honor received, and the appearance made. Look at Romans chapter 2, if you would. After this, we'll hasten pretty close to the end here. 
Hold your place in John, if you would. I just, I found this, this verse in Romans chapter 2, and I thought, man, it's a description of the Jews, but it's certainly applicable. It is a description of the Jews' view of religion. And I, I read it, I thought, man, if this is not a description of, of churches. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 28. Notice the contrast that's being made in Romans 2, 28 and 29. says this, Romans 2.28, For he is not a Jew, which is one, what's the word? Outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. You see that? So the Jews would say, well, I've been circumcised. I'm good. Nicodemus says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm of the strictest sect. I keep all the rules. I'm a Jew. I'm the right race. I've been circumcised on the eighth day, like Paul said in Philippians chapter, two, chapter 3. They say, I keep the rules. I do the ceremonies. I participate in the festivals. Every time God says men, are, men, men and families are supposed to appear in Jerusalem, I appear. I go to the synagogue. I go to church every Sunday. I've been baptized. I've partaken the Lord's Supper. I've been born again. And Jesus said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those things are not the kingdom of God. Those things will not provide access to the kingdom of God. You think it's about those things, but it's not about those things Amen. at all. Amen. Ye must be born again. You can't even see what I'm talking about. Because what Jesus is talking about is an inward relationship to God. What Jesus is talking about is what God sees in the heart, our relationship to Him. That personal, secret, private submission to our King, the kingdom of God. But to a person who has not been born again, that seems kind of useless. I'll be honest with you. Why would you do that? Some people pray, they have a prayer list and they pray just so they can tell people they pray because it's about appearances. Same thing with reading the Bible. People take things that are good and right and they use them as religious exercises to soothe their troubled soul about the question of being born again. But this concept of being born again, this new birth, still troubles him. Romans 2.28, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. The Jew says, I've been circumcised according to the law. What need is there of inward circumcision? What need is there of an inward change? What need is there of what we might call private, the old timers called it, private piety. The private, secret knowledge and fellowship with God. And I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about the way we walk with God day by day. I'm talking about just knowing God privately. That Our personal, individual, spiritual relationship to God. What need is that? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I come to church, I do all that. I'm as good as anybody else. Jesus said, you must be born again. You're not, you're not going into the kingdom of God until you've been born again. You're not a part of his kingdom. Listen now. 
You're not a part of his kingdom. No matter what religious ritual or club or group or church or whatever you are a part of, you're not a part of his kingdom unless you have been born again. The last phrase in Romans 2 says this, who's in the spirit and not in the letter, whose, look at that, look at this phrase, whose praise is not of men but of God, and therein lies the crux. The difference between Nicodemus and a person who's been born again is the motive. Listen. <clears throat> People who have been born again go to church, and people who have not been born again go to church the same, right? But the motivation behind going to church and the motivation behind the various activities, you might say, or rituals or rites or whatever, is different. And this is illustrated with the Jews here whose praise is not of men, but of God. See, when you're in the kingdom of God, God's praise is what matters. But to the merely religious person who has not been born again, they like the praise that comes from men, and that motivates and animates their religious exercise. Now, going back to John 3, Nicodemus does not understand. Nicodemus is thinking purely outwardly as it relates to the flesh. Nicodemus is a living example of a person who cannot see the kingdom of God because Nicodemus has not been born again. So when Jesus speaks of this other kingdom, Nicodemus is like, look, I'm doing everything and there's something left that I'm, there's some stone unturned I'm unaware of. There's some kingdom I'm not a part of. Hold on, I've done all the religious things. I have checked all the boxes. And you're telling me there's something else? And Jesus says, yep, that's right. Nicodemus did not understand. He could not see the kingdom of God, just like Jesus said. And listen, we talk about, you know, we that have been born again, we, talk, we tell, try to tell people, you, Jesus said, you have to be born again. I was born again on this day. This is what God did in my life when he changed me. And all, we, talk, we describe it to people and people scratch their head. I, I'm not joking. They, they scratch their head and they do not understand what we're talking about because they do the same things we do, but they're thinking outward. They're thinking religious exercises. And I, we're not talking about that. And that's what Nicodemus, look what he says in the next verse. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? His mind is still on the outward. He said, okay, well, there's this king. All right, so I have to be born again. All right, what do I need to do? Where do I have to get baptized? What church do I have to join to do that? You're missing it. He immediately tries to make sense of what the Lord is saying in earthly, fleshly, and physical terms. This is, listen now, this is how he views his religion. His religion is where you go to perform the rites and ceremonies and rituals and formalities to get honor and praise of men and be upstanding citizen and make yourself feel like you're righteous. That must be what it means to be born again. Jesus says, no. 
As I said before, is there a rite or exercise or ceremony that can be performed, some sacrifice that can be made, some external act that must be done to enter God's kingdom? No. No. And if you think it is, that's because you don't see the kingdom of God. The next verse. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I'll just say this briefly. The water mentioned here has nothing to do with baptism. Amen. Baptism is not in view at all. If you look at the verse above, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is talking about uh, the natural birth. And the verse after it, verse number 6, Jesus mentions that which is born of the flesh, that's the natural birth. In the context, therefore, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the natural birth and the spiritual birth. If I can read it like this, it might make a little bit more sense. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But again, what do people take this verse and do? Being baptized has nothing whatsoever to do with a birth. Nothing, I mean, you might be able to make the argument it has something to do with a washing or cleansing, maybe, because there's water. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with a birth. Baptism has nothing. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, not even logically does that make sense. But people run to that, and they say, see, that's saying you got to be baptized to be born again. See, that's what they, and this is the interpretation of this verse. They say, see, to be born again means to be baptized. See, it says water. But by doing that, what they have revealed is the very thing Jesus is talking about. They want a religious right to check, an outward visible religious right that they can do in front of everybody to check and say, see, click, I am born again by that. And there is no evidence in their life that they have actually been born anew. None. Because they haven't been. And you know what? They check that box and they, they pat themselves on the back and they say, I've been born again because I did this external act like baptism because after all it says water. And they soothe their conscience and they go away and have no relationship to God. They're not in the kingdom of God. They have no inward relation to God whatsoever. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Just as Nicodemus, men try to use this very verse to say that a person to be born again is equal to being baptized, which is the polar opposite, the actual opposite of what Jesus is saying. Verse 3 and verse 5. Verse 3 says he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's perception. Verse 5. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is entrance. The Lord is laying the same requirement upon both. He says in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
You cannot change. Listen now. You can't change your essential nature. Right? You can't change your essential nature. If you're born flesh, that flesh is sinful. Nothing, no ceremony in the world is going to change that nature. No church, no religion, no fasting, nothing is going to change that nature. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying you have to have a new birth. You say, well, I got baptized. That's not what he's talking about. See, a, a new birth, and I, I, Lord willing, I'll talk about this tonight a little bit more, but the new birth is a new creation, something new. But here's the kicker, and I, I hasten to the end. Naturally, at this point, you look at verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Jesus is saying, ye must be born again. You say, well, I don't really understand it. Ye must be born again. Well, I don't know if I'm born again. Ye must be born again. I don't know what that means. I don't know if I am. Ye must be born again. I've, I'm a member of a church. I've been back. Ye must be born again. You're not in God's kingdom until you've been born again. And if you don't know what that means, it's because you haven't been. This is a, listen now, the new birth is a miraculous act of God in your life. Amen. It is not something you do. It is something that is done to you. You can't, there is no, at this point you say, well, this is a necessity. Jesus himself said you must be born again. And we say, and, and so the natural question is, what do I have to do? You can't do it. Nothing you can do can make you born again. Look at John 1. You don't believe me? Look at John 1. A verse, uh, verse 10, Jesus, uh, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, He was in the world and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Look at verse 13. Which were born. Now, as a matter of grammar... Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man are parenthetical statements. So I'm going to read it without that so that we can understand what it's saying. Which were born of God. This is the new birth that Jesus is speaking of in chapter 3. Which were born, notice what it says. This is how you don't get born again. Not of blood. Has nothing to do with your heritage. You being from a preacher's family does not mean you're born again. You being a Jew or any other race does not mean you're born again. Because that which is flesh is flesh. You can't change your essential nature. Number two, nor the will of the flesh. There's nothing in the world you can do to create yourself anew. You can try to live different. You can try to be different. You can make vows. You can make uh, uh, resolutions. You cannot bear yourself again. This, this, this that Jesus is talking about is an act of God. 
nor of the will of man. No religion, no scheme, no plan, no rite, no ceremony. No ceremony can cause you to be born of God. We say, well, how do I get born again? Again, you can't. It's an act of God. So, well, what do I do then? I'm glad you asked. Look at chapter 3 again. Verse 13, that's the last verse I read. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's his crucifixion. That's our Lord bearing our sins. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous, dying in the place of the wicked. Bearing the wrath of God that we deserve. Verse 15. That. Now this is the end. This is the goal. This is God's intention of the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The cross hasn't happened, but yet here it is. Right? Don't dare read over verse 16 casually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. On the question of being born again, you can't be born again. There's nothing you can do to make that happen. It is purely and only and singularly an act of Almighty God, a miraculous act of God that he bestows upon those that truly put their faith and trust in His Son and the blood He shed on the cross. Everybody wants a a religious rite. They They can perform some club they can join, some church they can be a member of, some some communion, some some ceremony they can do so that they can check in their mind and heart. Yep, that's it. Born again. The reason why, the reason why you don't know what it means to be born again is because you haven't. Because God hasn't done that to you. Because you haven't believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, when someone gets, when when God does that and God creates someone anew, there is an unmistakable, undeniable, permanent, eternal change that is made upon them, not by them, but upon them by God himself. And all of a sudden, they realize this 
is what it means to be born again. This is what the kingdom of God is. And all of a sudden, the law of God is in their inward parts. All of a sudden, they have the spirit of God in them, and they have that old nature, but they have a new nature too, and that new nature longs after God. That's because they're born again. And they want God, and they care about that private, secret, intimate fellowship and relationship to God that they didn't care about before when they only cared about was religion and how it appeared. They care about that private relationship. And so they start to walk with God little by little because they've been born again. Religion says input A, output B. Check box, I'm good. No, 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 no. That's not the kingdom of God. So I want to ask you a question. Are you born again? Are you born again? Has that unmistakable, undeniable, eternal, miraculous change happened in your life? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus and His cross. Has that happened? You cannot enter into the kingdom of God without it. If you sit there and question, listen, if you question, you say, I, don't, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't know what that means. I just don't know. Listen, that's something you need to go to God about. You need to be serious. Listen, please, please do not brush aside this question. Come to God where you are or at the altar and say, Lord, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know if I've been born again. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. Tell God that. Tell him that. Lord, help me understand. Serious business. Let's pray together.